What do you consider to be unusual? Oh, I don't know. What do you recommend? Everybody, welcome to the seventh installment of the Cuffcast, our special Halloween edition with guest Kayla Janice discussing her beautiful documentary *Woodlands: Darkened Days Bewitched*. I'm Cuff lead programmer and host of the show, Cameron McGowan. With me, as always, is the spooktacular Rhett Miller. Oh! So, Rhett, we took September off. Worst month of the year for me, typically. I just you know, bogged down with the transition of the seasons, film festivals, screeners, day job stuff. We just couldn't do it. And I'm sorry if, if that uh, disappointed anybody. But Halloween is where it all comes to fruition, where I start to feel good again. I'm starting to feel good again. October, my favorite month of the year. We've got the beautiful leaves on the ground, setting the perfect atmosphere for horror films. And I'm not one of these people who will begrudge the bandwagoners who only watch horror in October. For October is the perfect month to watch horror. It's a little too cold to go outside. You're seeing the changing of the seasons, reflecting on your own mortality, perhaps. I want to see it expressed in a surreal, exciting way on screen. Yeah, it's the start of the death of all the plants and everything around. It just has that feel, the air. You can even smell it outside. Yeah, and you get to see cool horror iconography everywhere. You see pumpkins, you see witches. Unfortunately, you see a lot of superheroes, but hey, kids need to celebrate Halloween too. But uh, Cuff, we like to celebrate Halloween hardcore for this seventh year in a row. We are doing a 12-hour Halloween horror marathon to celebrate Halloween. So for people who haven't partaken in the craziness of our Halloween marathon. It's 12 hours, seven horror films, costume contest in the middle, and cereal in the morning for all of those who can withstand the mayhem. It felt like the first time you guys did it, we, you guys like snuck in a bunch of really awesome genre movies and that we'd never see it again, right? And then every year it just keeps getting better and it's more of a staple now. Like I, a lot of my students I teach at SATE, they're like, you know, always like, more and more people are discovering it and like telling me about it as if it's like something I don't know about yet. Like, you gotta check this out. There's some new, you know, Friday the 13th movie playing. It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Welcome it, to the club. It was only supposed to be a one-off, but it did so well. It sold so many tickets that we've just had to do it every single year. And I love doing it. I love getting to put certain movies at certain times of the morning. I like trying to plan for some weird ones that the audiences may not have heard of before while delivering some perennial favorites. Yeah, I always wanted to ask you about it because, you know, you got to kind of curate it. Like there's probably the, you know, the less hardcore people will be at the first one or two or, you know, people like me who have kids and you can't stay up too late or whatever, but you, you find a way. But like, how do you curate it? Like, you know, you, you sneak the ones, is it the third slot or you start with a banger? Like what's the approach? Yeah, most doing? sane people only do the first two. And then they go home. So the first two are typically the safer, more well-known, or new films. Typically, we've uh, shown films like Hellfest, uh, Extra uh, Terrestrial. 
What else have we shown yeah, for Chucky, new ones? The Chucky yeah, one. we got the new Chucky one year. So we'll always try to kick it off with something new. But this year, everything was going straight to streaming before our festival. So this year, we're kicking things off with one of many people's favorite slasher films, one of many people's favorite horror films, Scream, with the new Scream coming out from the directors of Ready or Not, closer to the end of the year. Very mm -hmm. stoked for that. Hello. Hello. Who is this? If you tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Well, just some scary movie. Like scary movies. Uh huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. Scream. The first scream, it's still kind of where the game changed, right? It was like, at that time, horror movies were quote unquote dead to critics and to the public and they weren't making as much money and they weren't catching the headlines. But once Scream came out, it was like a whole new renaissance of horror movies came out, a whole new, I don't even want to say genre because there were postmodern horror films before that, but it was kind of now mainstream again to be winking and nudging at the horror films, but I think Scream still delivers the cheap thrills of some of the finest slashers, even though I know you feel it's a bit too Scooby-Doo <laughs> at times. That's what I've, I like most about re-watching Scream is some of the Scooby-Doo elements, because it is quite like cute and quaint, but then the kills are still like gross. Like it's, it's something that Wes Craven does so well is just like everyday suburbia, and then something gross is happening within what you're used to in your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, when, when I saw it the first time in theaters, like, I was a teenager. I hadn't seen too many movies in theaters because I wasn't old enough to go yet. But I remember seeing that, and I remember, like, uh, there was this oppressive feeling. Like, I just felt, like, claustrophobic, like, during the Drew Barrymore opener, right? Like, I just felt like, this is too scary. Like, I need to find an excuse to, like, ditch out on this date I'm on right now because I am too afraid <laughs> in the theater. And then it does get Scooby-Doo, and, like, the, the last half I don't find scary at all. It's, like, really, really highly lit. Like, I, I don't find right. it that scary. And then, you know, it's kind of jokey. The, re the reveal is, is even more jokey with Matthew Lillard and all that. Spoiler, sorry. <laughs> How old is the movie? <laughs> but, like, that's a great movie to lead into it because it, it gets you right off the bat. Like, that's, that opening is, like, iconic. Right? But then it's not too scary to, like, really, like, isolate or, like, uh, you know, alienate any, like, people who aren't maybe used to watching horror all the time. Like Yeah, that's what might. the script is great at, is letting yeah. people in on the joke and kind of introducing some of the tropes that they mm. s subvert in the film. And it's just, it's a great 7 o'clock horror to kind of get your feet dipped in the water before shit gets a little crazy. And it endures, too, because, like, you know, every time, you know, they've, you know, there's a huge gap from three to four, and then now four to the, whatever this one, reboot. It's not really reboot, because they always keep the same characters in, right? Most of the time, they like the name, the property, Texas Chainsaw, or whatever, right. Halloween, and they'll bring new characters back, or they'll redo it. But this one, they're like, no, we're staying with it. Like, people love 
David Arquette or people love Courtney Cox, Nev Campbell, like, you know, so it's been interesting to see, like, this is the one, not just the franchise that's endured, but like the actual, like, chronology of this series still seems to resonate. Yeah, there's not a convoluted canon at play just yet, even though the titles are going to get confusing, because the new one's just called Scream, right? Yeah, nothing different about it, yeah. Just I'm going to call it Scream 5. <laughs> All right, next up on the docket, we're showing In the Mouth of Madness, baby, from John Carpenter. This one will drive you absolutely mad. The riots began because the stores could not meet the demand of Sutter Kane's novel, In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. Who's the guy that writes horror books? You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's just that. I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. I know this book will drive people crazy. Well, I just hope so. The movie comes out next month. I gotta admit, when I first watched this when I was a teen, I didn't know what to expect. I, I knew it would kind of be about a Stephen King type dude, but I didn't really know a lot about Lovecraft at the time. But yeah, I was like a 12 year old boy. I saw this at Southland Cinema and I will still never be able to get the image of the old man shackled to his demon wife at the hotel desk out of my head. But when I rewatch In the Mouth of Madness, I'm just struck by Carpenter's ability to make the pulpy believable. You know, it's like if anyone else tried some of the lines of dialogue he pulls off or some of the performances, it, it would fall flat. But there's something about Carpenter where he's able to unite everything in his film. It's well, with the exception of a few of the later ones. But no note feels off in a John Carpenter movie, in a great John Carpenter movie. And In the Mouth of Madness is one of those for me where, where no note feels off. Everything feels like it's meant to be there. Even though it's not a Lovecraft adaptation, certainly it feels like one of the best Lovecraft movies because he gets it right like in terms of the feeling of like, you see these like tentacle weirds, cosmic sort of creatures, but you don't get to see them enough that you get to really formulate. They, they, they just exist in this like dread that you don't understand yet. And Sam Neill's character coming in there so cocky at the beginning, cause he's like, oh, I know horror. I'm the king of horror. And then just to watch his brain just completely fall apart. Yeah, and there's some just striking imagery in that, or just scary kind of things. Like, you know, like when they're in the diner and there's a guy with the axe. Oh, there. yeah. Like, it's just like, wow, these Sutter are... Kane. Yeah, yeah, Sutter Kane. That came in a downturn in Carpenter. Like, you know, he had done memoirs of an invisible man. He was sort of like, had fallen out of his glory days, right? But here yeah. was one last sort of gasp of like, no, I still got it. Yeah, one last banger as yeah. far as I'm concerned. As much as I did like Ghosts of Mars in my youth, I've revisited and didn't enjoy it as much. In the Mouth of Madness, I enjoy it more and more each time I watch it. And I hope it's one that some folks haven't seen um, before because it is, it is definitely one of the more underrated John Carpenter films. But I know there's a big Shout Factory Blu-ray out, so I, I think it's starting to get its due. Yeah, his best of the 90s, I think. And then we got Mick Garris's best film, by far. I I'd love say. this one. Critters 2, baby. Grover's Bend. It's just a speck on the map of the universe. Transform. 
They get a different class of tourist here. Company's coming. Noisier. Pushier. They're turning this peaceful little town. You got nothing to lose but your life. Critters 2, I don't know what to say about Critters 2 other than it's just a goddamn good time. It's a perfect sequel. This one doesn't really seem to get its due, but it like it expands so much on the original one and brings it to the town. And I always love movies that are in a town. Like you get to know all the people and there's a lot of fun with like all the different types of walks of life that are all together and impacted by this spaceship with a bunch of little hungry uh, hedgehog kind of creatures (laughs) eating everything, forming that giant ball. Intergalactic bounty hunters. Oh yeah, like it's got it all. Playboy, uh, I don't forget what magazine they hold up and that's what one of the the aliens transitions into that creature. And then it even has the staple in it when they hold up the actual <laughs> magazine. So yeah, it's Mick, just got it all. It's wild. Mick was firing on all cylinders. This one's like an unabashed crowd pleaser. A good time. He knew what people wanted when they were going to watch a sequel to Critters. And he delivered the goods. I like it way more than the first one. I love the first one. But this one, I think, is better. It just expands in every way. And the cool thing, too, is like it's PG-13. But it doesn't feel like it's for kids. It feels like it's, anyone can watch it. Like a seasoned horror vet. You know, or a kid, when my kid's old enough to watch horror movies, like that'll be one of the first ones I show. So I'm super excited to see it with a crowd. I think it's going to be a real crowd pleaser for sure. Then we got our costume contest. But after the costume contest, we got definitely the weirdest movie on the lineup. Whoa! Winter Beast, which Vincent just put out as a part of their Homegrown Horrors Blu-ray set. And I'd never seen it before, but I'd heard how good this movie was. And when I watched that Blu-ray for the first time, I knew I had to show this at a Cuff Halloween Marathon. It's got the spirit of Deadly Spawn or Evil Dead 2, very hands-on, let's make a movie style. However, it never gets boring like some of those movies. It's constantly unfolding. A lot of beautiful stop motion from Henry Selleck, uh, who folks may know from his work on Coraline or Nightmare Before Christmas. And it's just extremely charming and it's, the whole movie reeks of, let's just have fun, let's make a movie, let's make a great stop motion creature movie um, and let's try to sell it Evil Dead 2 style. And it's just that era of movies that you can feel the energy and fandom of the filmmakers, but also the movie's just damn entertaining. Yeah, from kind of like the late 70s to early 90s, like VHS boom era, it just felt like anyone could make a movie despite having a small budget. You know, they could still envision the craziest things and put it out there. We, we don't seem to have that as much today in, in the same way. So this looks super charming. It's the only one I haven't seen from this lot. So I'm super excited to actually get a chance to watch it Try to on stay the up, screen. Right? Yeah, Try to I stay will. up. It's 1230, but it's only like 70 minutes long. So you can do it. All right, next up is No Stranger to Rhett and I. We watch this movie every single year. We 
have many references to it in the feature film Red Letter Day that I directed and Red shot and produced with me. It is Friday the 13th, a new beginning. If the memory of Jason still haunts you, you're not alone. Friday the 13th, Part 5, A New Beginning. We got Demon, we got Reggie the Reckless, Damn Enchiladas, we got some beautiful new wave dancing, some serenade. Now, this Friday the 13th, people used to hate because it's the one without Jason, right? It's a copycat killer. Yeah. Don't worry, the twist, it doesn't even matter. Well, it does matter because it's handled so poorly, <laughs> the twist. <laughs> you know it right off the bat who you the killer is. You know it right off the bat. They like, give you about four chances to see just in case you missed it the first yeah, time. Yeah, like you can't be mad that the killer's not Jason in this one because it's like, it's kind of so obvious in a way. And you know what? Just... Just, He's still dressed like Jason. Just check your phone the, the moment he falls down and then the, they unmask him. Just check your phone for a second, then it could still be a Jason movie. Like, that's it. You're missing one shot. One shot changes it. It's got the highest body count. It's the craziest movie. Most nudity, I think, too. Most nudity, the biggest amount of characters and just different kinds of characters. You got hillbillies, you got greaser bikers, you got kids, you know, kids cute and counselors, just, a mom. Sheriff, yeah, it's just everyone's all around in this one. It's Kung, just Tommy wild. Jarvis doing kung fu. <laughs> the wildest thing you'll ever see. Reggie the Reckless, such a fun little, like, yeah, you usually get the final girl, but you get the final kid as well. <laughs> yeah. He's taking a bulldozer and just taking out Jason. Like, uh, Reggie Reggie holds his own more than almost anyone else in the series. You know. It's yeah, Reggie should have had his own trilogy, Tommy Jarvis style. <laughs> yeah. So that one's at 2 a.m. There's no way you're going to fall asleep. Trust me. Yeah, you can't. And then following that, we have one of the great Roger Corman-produced creature features, Joe Dante's Piranha. Who could have imagined they were there? Who could have predicted they would attack? And now, who would survive? Piranha, they're here. Piranha, they're hungry. What's the matter with you? Piranha, they're unstoppable. Stop that! Keep your hand out of the water. What's wrong with the water? The water is filled with carnivorous fish. Piranha. They're here. They're hungry. They'll eat you alive. Who can stop them? Jaws was obviously making big bank at the time. Everyone was trying to get their Jaws ripoff in there. But they made the smart decision of hiring Mr. Joe Dante to write and direct this film. Well, I believe John Sayles... Wrote, wrote the it, film, wrote it, yeah. yep. but I know John had a lot to do with the script, and it's got his unique sense of humor and charm and quaint small town being hit by ravenous piranhas this time. Uh, you definitely see the makings of all of his other films in Piranha. Like, there's a lot of gremlins in it. There's a lot of matinee in it. There's some burbs in it. 
There's definitely some howling in it. Like, it was clear coming out the gate, Joe Dante knew what he was good at and what he could contribute to the world. And Piranha still holds up as one of the finest creature features of that era and maybe one of my favorite Roger Corman films. Yeah, definitely one of the one of the highlights for Roger Corman as a producer. But yeah, it just felt like Joe Dante knew like the B movie formula, or like he had a real affinity for the '50s sort of sci-fi movies and that, and sort of just transposing this sort of feel of again, kind of a community being impacted by you know these little yeah per, schools Hungry of fish. piranha. Just I love all those shots of the piranha just like shaking like crazy yeah. and they do it about forty times in the movie, but. There's just such a fun, giddy spirit to it that, yeah, Joe Dante was so good at in his prime, just, you know, capturing that. Like Gremlins, or my favorite Gremlins too. you know, it's just a madcap, sort of just lots of stuff going on and lots of fun. And it's charming, whereas uh, the, they've remade it and then did a sequel to the remake, which are definitely both more cynical and ironically detached, which I'm also fine with. I quite like Piranha 3D. And three double D's really growing on me because I'd say Piranha three double D feels like the biggest budget trauma movie of all time. It totally is. Like, I, I know I they were saying that about Suicide Squad. They're like Suicide Squad's the biggest trauma movie, and then you watch it, it's like this is not a trauma movie. This is very safe. But you watch Piranha three double D, it's like oh yeah, this is this is a, still offensive. And it was like just made like what five years ago, <laughs> yeah. seven years ago. Yeah, John Gulliger killed yeah. it with Piranha three yeah. double yeah. D. It's not as refined as Aja's or Dante's, but it's scrappy and dirty. And, uh, and 3D. <laughs> yeah, and 3D. And then last but not least, for those who've made it to the last film of the Halloween marathon, Don't Panic. That's the name of the film, Don't Panic. is a Nightmare on Elm Street ripoff unabashedly. Except everything is super askew. All of the characters are somewhat too old, but playing way younger characters yeah. than they should be. The lead is in his PJs, his beautiful dinosaur PJs. <laughs> the entire film, and this is a man who should not be wearing PJs of, uh, of this <laughs> design. Though I know Rhett has PJs of this design. I have those same ones. I've contemplated wearing them to the screening, but I, I wonder if anyone will get the joke until very, right at the very end. You all <laughs> look like a complete psychopath for 10 hours sitting there in my PJs. But. And so this was a Mexican director who also did a movie called Cemetery of Terror, which is a Friday the 13th ripoff and a very effective Friday the 13th ripoff. And I'd say Don't Panic is a very effective Nightmare on Elm Street ripoff. And we put this... At 5.30 a.m., knowing that folks are going to be groggy and eating their cereal and in need of 
some what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's got a lot of that. It's got like the one of my favorite late '80s tropes is like the the yuppie sort of guys that are deciding to do a seance or whatever. They're do, using the Ouija board and stuff like that. Like it's just like, who are these people? Like why are they doing that? Like in the original Ghoulies, like you know, it just seemed to be a thing that people did in the movies for a, <laughs> yeah, a few yeah. years. The there. yuppie occult thing is weird because yeah, now everyone who celebrates occultism is like hippie-ish or like hipster coolish. Yeah, or even at the time. You think you know, like Paradise Lost, or is like people who listen to Metallica or something. But here are these like just That's new wave yuppie guys yeah. deciding to do a séance, you know, and they're supposed to be teenagers, <laughs> but they're like clearly like thirty-two or something like that. Yeah, a lot of fun. It's so much fun. So we hope that listeners at home who haven't bought your tickets that we've helped get an appetite going for the craziness we have in store on Saturday, October thirtieth. Always at the Globe Cinema. Buy your tickets now. And then also in November, Cuff is going to be bringing back Cuff Docs to the Globe Cinema. Nice. And we're busy locking that now, but I'm very pleased to say we've already locked Woodlands, Dark and Days Bewitched from director Kayla Janice. We're very excited to speak to Kayla about all the cool work she's done, including the making of this documentary, editing special features with Severin, her uh, programming, she's an author, and she also curated the Cuff Saturday Morning Cartoon Party for over 10 years. It was my honor to finally get to sit down with Kayla Janice. Kayla, thanks so much for joining us on the CuffCast. I just watched Woodlands, Dark and Days, Bewitched uh, for a second time this past week. And it, the movie does not feel its length. Congratulations. It's such a beautiful... Well, that's great. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a three-hour all-encompassing documentary of folk horror, which we are extremely excited to present at Cuff Docs later in November. And yeah, I had no idea how... What I didn't know, you know, before watching this film. But uh, do not have an internet browser ready when watching it, or else you may be spending over 200 to $400. I picked up the BBC's uh, Ghost Stories for Christmas while watching it. It looks awesome. And I also picked up the Skeleton Key, which I'd never seen. And I was like, if Kayla's going to put this in the dock, I'm sure it's worth watching. Yeah, there was actually one of the interviewees in the doc. We don't have her like talking about it directly, but Maisha Wester did say in her interview that it was one of the films she found interesting that dealt with Kudu, you know, that was kind of a Hollywood movie, but that she thought dealt with it in an interesting way, you know, so. Very cool. And so uh, Cuff fans may know Kayla as the curator of our Saturday morning cartoon party, which you did for over a decade before passing the torch to Dave Bertrand. I want to ask, how did you first start doing the Saturday morning cartoon party? I used to do a horror festival in Vancouver called Cine Muerte, and I would always have a all-night movie marathon, and I would be trying to feed people breakfast every morning after the marathon. And so for several years, I tried many different things that didn't work. Like I would have like Denny's or something like be the caterers and come with like what was supposed to be hot breakfasts for everyone. And they were all cold all the time, of course, and, and awful. And so like every time I would try to have like proper breakfast for people, it would just taste gross. It would be cold. It was like, you know, and so then inspired by my friend Torn Atkinson was like an, an old friend who was like a cartoon obsessive, but also just like a kind of role-playing guy. And he was like in a Lovecraft themed band and stuff. 
And he used to have his birthday party at his house every year. So it would just be like a handful of friends. You know, they'd come to his birthday every year at his apartment and he would have kind of like a five hour marathon of vintage cartoons that he would play. And he would have like a buffet of cereal on the kitchen table that people could just eat cereal. And so it was kind of like, that was where I got the idea to do cereal as the food for the marathons at Cinemuerte. I was like, oh, you know, I could just put out a table with a bunch of cereal and then, you know, I don't have to worry about food being cold or anything like that. And it turned out people like loved that so much more than just the regular breakfast. Like they loved having all the sugar cereals and being able to go back several times, you know, to get more. And you can also like return all the cereal that you don't use. So it was actually like a re- much more kind of affordable way to do the breakfast too, because you weren't like wasting a bunch of money or anything. You know, so I did that as part of Cinemuerte, but then that branched into me doing kind of like a ripoff of my friend Torrin's birthday parties, but just like on a larger scale at a movie theater where people could come, like the public could come to it. And I added a bunch of stuff to it because Torrin would just do the cartoons, but I started doing things like adding commercials, station identifications, public service announcements, all that kind of stuff. So I tried to make it more into like an actual kind of replica of what a Saturday morning would feel like. And yeah, people show up with giant bowls at Cuff when we do it in person. And Brennan, one of our lead programmers, actually makes trips to the United States to buy some of the strange uh, sugary cereals we can't get in Canada. We also dress up for it. I've been Count Chocula four years in a row. Uh, I mean, I, I do fit the part, but it's also we don't wash the outfits. So you kind, you're kind of stuck in your role for as long as the outfit exists. Uh, so I always found there was a great balance between fun nostalgia, but you would also find some kind of unsettling cartoons at time or like darker portrayals of the period. Could you talk a bit about how you find the perfect mix of cartoons? The thing that's fun for me is to always look back at cartoons that really show the time they're from, you know? So often this this could be things like where they'll have issues like environmental issues or something, or they'll be dealing with civil rights issues or feminism or whatever. Like they'll kind of have things in them that are reflecting topics that are important at the time, you know, and, or especially like important, like newly important, you know, like things that were, you know, part of the sexual revolution and the civil rights era and all this stuff. There was all kinds of issues that started to show up in cartoons, like in the early seventies and stuff. So a lot of those were really interesting to me. And then also like all the rock bands, there's so many like rock bands and stuff like on old cartoons and bubblegum music and stuff like that. It was just like a big part of the cartoon you know, like every every cartoon had some rock band on it, you know, solving mysteries or something, you know, so it's that. But then also I really like seeing how they would deal with issues that they don't deal with very well. <laughs> so like I remember there was some kind of I, what cartoon was it now? Maybe it was the Barclays, which is like a family of dogs. And it's like a feminist issue where the wife decides she wants to be a feminist and she's <laughs> she's going to take her husband's job for a week. They're going to like switch positions. So she's going to be the bus driver and the husband is going to stay home and, you know, to do the laundry and take care of the kids and everything. And so of course they have a horrible time, like trying to do each other's jobs. And at the end of it, the wife is like, I'm never going to think of feminism again. (laughs) (laughs) And I just remember the audience being like, what? (laughs) Because that was like the message of the cartoon. You think it's going a certain way, you know, and then it's like, oh, the lesson is actually like, (laughs) 
that the woman should just stay in her job, you know? And, um, yeah, and so what... stuff like that is really funny, you know? But a lot of times it's like, you know, I would introduce the cartoons and just say, this isn't necessarily the kind of cartoon show you just want to sit your kid in front of and walk away. You know, like a lot of parents, you may have to have a discussion with your kids after you see this cartoon show, because there's going to be things that come up like, guns for instance there's so many guns in old cartoons they don't really have guns as much in cartoons now you know but like older cartoons people will have all kinds of weapons and guns they'll be pointing a gun right in someone's nose you know like there's so much hitting and slapping of other characters and stuff and you know you forget when when you're kind of from that era you forget that nowadays parents and kids like cartoons are different now they're not violent in the same way i mean i think there are still violent cartoons but but they're not violent in the same way where it's just kind of like played down that like hitting people is a normal response to everything (laughs) and so i don't know so i like I do feel like sometimes there are risks where the cartoons feel like maybe they're inappropriate for audiences now, or maybe sometimes they're a bit scary for the kids. Like I remember playing the devil and Daniel mouse, which is like old Nelvana cartoon, like a Halloween special. And I got complaints about it, not from cuff necessarily, but from other places that played it. They, the parents were complaining that it was too scary for the kids. And I was just like, well, it was made for kids. Like I, I saw it as a kid, but I guess, you know, things have changed. And so it's too scary for kids now, you know, so there's all kinds of things like that, like times change, but that's part of what was fun about doing the cartoon show is that you're kind of showing this moment in time, you know, that doesn't exist anymore. And so it can be really fun for kids and it can be fun for parents to have something like to have a kid's event that is also nostalgic for them to go to, you know, but it will often require discussions with the kids after. Yes, but uh, that's that's part of the charm for our audience, at least. Is I've seen some parents having some serious conversations with their kids after some of the cartoons. But I also see some of the kids just totally check out during the more serious cartoons and go get their fill of candy, whereas the parents are more just like, this is the one I'm here for. <laughs> so did you keep a running tally in your head of the of the cartoons that appealed to you growing up or, or how much of it was starting from scratch each year? It started off where it was very much, you know, things I remembered, cartoons I remembered, episodes I remembered. But then as it went on, I would start to look for certain types of things, you know, so some of the cartoons I would end up playing would be cartoons that were either really short lived or like I didn't see them myself as a kid. And then other things I'd be looking for an episode about a certain thing, you know, so I'd be like looking for an episode that dealt with like alcoholism or gun safety or Halloween or Christmas or like whatever, you know, like themed things. And so I would end up finding all kinds of other weird cartoons by doing that. So it ended up being like more than just stuff that was personally nostalgic for me, but I still did stick to kind of the era that was nostalgic for me. Like I didn't really branch too much into the nineties because I was already in my early twenties by then, you know, I wasn't really watching cartoons at that point. And so a lot of the cartoons that came out then are totally alien to me, but like Dave Bertrand, who took over the cartoon show this year or last year, you know, he's about 10 years younger than me. So that's also means that people coming to it will get a broader range of stuff that they weren't getting when I was doing it. The next generation. So you talked a bit about Cinemuerte, which I've 
heard about many times is a, is a wonderful film festival. Uh, local cinephile Greg Saunier talks to me once a year about getting to meet Jean Roland at your festival. Can you talk a bit about the formation of Cinemuerte and how that may have led to some of your other endeavors? Yeah, so Cinemuerte was one of the first things I did. First thing I did was I had a fanzine and I would write reviews and stuff and I was mail ordering movies. So I would be often reviewing movies that were not available in Canada that we didn't even have. We weren't legally allowed to have them at the video store where I worked. I worked at Black Dog Video in Vancouver. And because we have obligatory ratings system in Canada, you couldn't just like order any movie you want from the States or something and then put it on a shelf at a video store. It has to have like a distributor in your province where you live. That distributor then pays for the film to be rated by the ratings board. And then you get the rating and then you're approved to be able to have it on your shelf. And so me ordering all these weird like European trash cinema type movies you know, there was no way we could have them on our shelf. We couldn't get them rated because you're not allowed to submit a film for a rating just as a retailer, you know, like you had to be the person who owned the rights and was the distributor of that film. And so there just weren't distributors for most of those films. So, you know, I would review the films, but then people would be like, you know, this is great. We can read all these reviews, but we have no way to watch any of these films that you're writing about. And so I went to a theater there was a little micro cinema called the blinding light that was then downtown. And it was like a hundred seats or something. And they had video and 16 millimeters. So they didn't have 35 millimeter, but I went there with like a list of films and just told the owner, here's a list of like, you know, obscure horror films. I would recommend if you can play any of these movies, I can help get an audience out through my fanzine and the video store or whatever. Like these are all films. I think people would come to, which was bullshit because I'd never programmed anything before. So, so I had no clue what people would actually come to or not. So anyways, so I didn't hear back from the guy for many months. And then he contacted me and said, okay, I'm doing the calendar. I'm doing the next calendar, which is like for June or whatever. He's like, what dates did you want for your horror film festival? And I was like, I don't have a horror film festival. And he was like, oh, I thought that was what you were asking me. Like you were giving me a list of films you wanted to show at your horror film festival. And I was just like, well, no, but if I did want to do that, like, what does it cost to rent theater? And it was like $200 a night. So I could have it for the whole night, you know, like two slots for $200, which even then was very cheap. And I had just gotten my student loan in January. And so I just was like, okay, I'll do it. I'm going to spend my student loan <laughs> doing this. So yeah, so I spent my student loan and I rented the theater and I printed programs and I just did the whole thing and I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't pay for the rights on like any of the films. I just played illegal bootlegs of most things uh, with the exception of there was a couple of people I had official contacts with like York Woodgerite, you know, who made Necromantic. I, I was in contact with him. So I had I had permission to show some of his films and then the movie Singapore Sling it was like a Greek film. I had the rights to show that. So there were certain things where I had, I had met Mitch Davis from the Fantasia Film Festival. Someone had introduced me to him. So he started helping me a lot with any contacts he had, you know, so there was a small amount of the films I actually got permission for, but most of them I did not have permission for. And of course it was the best lineup. First year was the best lineup in the whole history of Cinemuerte, I think, because there were no no financial obstacles because I was just playing whatever I wanted from bootlegs, you know? So it was like possession and angst and deep red and woman in a lizard skin, Singapore sling, necromantic, breakfast at the Manchester morgue. You know, I mean, it was just like all the classics. So it did really well. You know, it was a small theater, so there wasn't that many seats to fill, but it, it did really well. People were really excited about it and people were very excited to meet other people who were 
horror fans, you know, because like a lot of these people, like they lived somewhere and just didn't know any other people who liked horror movies, you know, so they thought they were kind of like the only one. And they're like, oh, there's no horror fans in Vancouver. And then they come to this event and there's like a hundred other people like them, you know, so they start making friends. And that was one of the best parts of doing the festival. I did it for seven years and just seeing like how the people would come back every year. You know, by the second and third year, these people who had been coming alone at first, they started coming with each other to the movies, right? And then by the end of the festival, they were like making movies together. Yeah, so that was a really nice evolution that I got to witness. That's beautiful. And then you started, a, was it Blue Sunshine was another film? I guess, what was it, a curation company? Or what would you call Blue Sunshine? It was Sunshine? a micro cinema. So micro like cinema. Dave, Bert Dave Bertrand, who is doing the cartoon show now, we knew each other a little bit from Vancouver, and we both moved to Montreal, rented a place, fitted it out, you know, like renovated it and stuff, and made it into a little micro cinema. And so we were open four days a week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah, so Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, we were closed. And we had other jobs, you know, that we needed to pay the rent and work and everything like that. And then we were open four days a week. So we were like running this place four days a week. And I would do like the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies classes there on Wednesdays. And then Thursdays were music movies. Friday was kind of like horror and exploitation, always on 16 millimeter. And then Saturdays was a bit of a mishmash. You know, we would do animated films, experimental films. And often if there was like a special guest coming from out of town, that would happen on a Saturday based on their schedule or whatever. So Saturdays were like a mix and match day, but the other days had kind of like regular themes, you know, so there were like regulars that would kind of come to those nights. Cool. And you were, were you um, still publishing your own writing at this time? Like partway through doing the festival, Cine Muerte, you know, and then I got too busy with other things and stopped doing the fanzine. You know, I had been writing off and on for just things like Fangoria and then the Fantasia Film Festival had a website that was kind of like a journal. And so I would write articles and interviews and stuff for that. And then I started writing House, my book, House of Psychotic Women in like 2009. So I was working on that. I'd already been kind of working on it off and on for years before that. But, but 2009 was when I started like really working on it. So I was writing that at the same time as running Blue Sunshine. And then there was like, you know, 2011, I think like the winter of 2011, I locked, locked myself in my room. Dave was doing most of the running of the theater and I locked myself in the room just like finishing my book. Fantastic. And when did that lead to the publishing of books like Kid Power? And I believe you had a Satanic Panic book. Is that your own press or can you talk a bit about more of that? Yeah. So that was like the, that journal that I mentioned that the Fantasia Festival was running, they had an online journal and I was the person who had kind of started it. I was employed by Fantasia at the time I started this journal and I called it Spectacular Optical because it was Canadian. So after about like, I don't know, a year and a half or two years or something of, of running it for the festival, they were looking at the numbers and realizing that, you know, the whole point of why they wanted to have this online journal was to keep their local audience engaged year round in the festival. But then they realized that it wasn't local people that were really engaging with the website. It was all people like elsewhere in the world. And so then it became harder for them to justify the expenses of, you know, paying a staff person to be running this website when it wasn't leading directly to like ticket sales at their festival and stuff, you know, so they decided they didn't want to do it anymore, but because I had built the website, I had thought of the name for it and everything. The owner of Fantasia, just gifted me the website. He was like, here, you can have it. You can have the URL, do whatever you want with it. And so I sat on it for a year, not knowing what I wanted to do with this website. And then I decided that I wanted to start up 
I wanted to change the mandate of Spectacular Optical to not be, you know, like an online journal, but to actually do print publications, you know, like books that were themed books and stuff. And so that's when I did Kid Power. That was the first book under Spectacular Optical. So that was 2014. And that was an anthology book that I co-edited with Paul Cora, all about, you know, like empowered kids in movies. And then we followed that up the next year with Satanic Panic in 2015. That was definitely our most uh, successful book that we did. And then in 2017, we did two. We did Lost Girls, which Sam Deegan was the curator of, but we were the publishers and we were kind of like the in-house editors, but that was all about the films of Jean Roland. And then we did Yuletide Terror, which was all about Christmas horror films. So both of those came out the same year in 2017. The next book in Spectacular Article has actually been in the works ever since then. So we're now like four years later and I've been working on this book about Robert Downey Sr. So Robert Downey Sr. and then also my own book about Cockfighter. So those are the two books that are still yet to come out from Spectacular Article that are very late. <laughs> Well, I hope there's a lot of buzz for the Cockfighter book after the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood novelization where there's essentially a chapter that is Cockfighter in there. I don't know if you've read really? it. Really? I haven't read it. Yeah, it's like the fourth chapter, but it's Cockfighter with Cliff and his dog Brandy. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, this is Cockfighter. <laughs> Weird. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, the bo- the book's pretty good overall, but that chapter's so good. So if you find a copy for eight bucks, definitely pick it up for the cockfighter throwback. (laughs) So how does all of this lead to producing special features with Severin? You know, like through all of this, I have my own private projects, but a lot of them don't really yield any money, you know, so I still need to have like a job job. And so I think I was talking to David Gregory at Severin. This would have been like around the time that Yuletide Terror came out. So it was like around Christmas of 2017. And I was just like, I just need a regular job. Like for all of 2017, I just spent working on these books, you know? So I was making very, very little money as I worked on those two books. So by Christmas time, I was like, I need a job. And so David was just like, oh, well, I guess, you know, you can edit special features for us or something because I knew how to edit, not very well, but, you know, enough to do a bonus feature of an interview with a director of a movie and stick some clips in and whatever. So He hired me as an editor. And then that's what I did for the first like six months that I worked there. I just edited featurettes and it was all like on assignment, you know, like he would get movies and he would be like, are you available to take this on? So it was like contract basis. And I was not, I didn't have any say in what the movies were or anything. They were just like assignments. But then about in like May of 2018, David Gregory and I, and a couple of our friends were out having beers and he mentioned that Severn was going to be releasing Blood on Satan's Claw on Blu-ray, like a limited edition, and that he wasn't planning on making any new extras because there actually were a ton of new extras that had just been made for the British ones and that we were going to be porting over those extras. And I said, oh, you don't want to have like even one thing? And he's like, well, what? Like, what am I going to do? We've already, they've already interviewed everybody and whatever. And I said, no, just like a normal, you know, like a, like a thing about folk horror, you know, like a half hour thing about like, what is folk horror? And, how, and he was like, well, what about it? I was like, I don't know, just like how it connects to Blood on Satan's Claw and how you have the unholy trinity of the three films and how it deals with like psychogeography. And he's like, what's psychogeography? <laughs> and I was like trying to explain it. And he was just like, okay, you do this, you go do it. And I was just like, but I'm not a producer. I'm just like a person who like does assignments or whatever. He was like, that doesn't matter. He's like, you know how to do it. He's like, you, you know, you know, the right people you should talk to. So just do it. Go arrange the interviews like and and just don't spend more than this much money or whatever. 
And uh, so I was just like, okay. So then all of a sudden now I have to like produce this thing, but it was still just only going to be like a half an hour long thing. I interviewed like six people and I started editing them together and realized that there was no way I could cut it to half an hour. Even just with those six people, there was too much information. Like, you know, there was a lot of stuff. And so I asked him, I was just like, well, how do I cut this down? I don't know what to do with it. And he was just like, well, is there a documentary about folklore? And I was like, well, not like a feature. There's there's people on YouTube who've made kind of like little commentaries about it and stuff like that. But there's there's not like a feature documentary about it. And he was like, okay, well, then just keep going. Do more, film more people. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I kept working on it, but I, you know, obviously I had no idea it was going to take three years. And that it was going to become this kind of flagship project for Severin and stuff like that, you know, because then there's over 200 movies that are discussed in the folk horror documentary. And then Severin ended up buying a bunch of those to make into a box set that they're going to release with the documentary now. And so it was like a massive undertaking. We interviewed over 50 people for it. And, you know, the box set that we are releasing with it, which is called All the Haunts Be Hours, which is named after the international chapter in the documentary. But yeah, the box set comes with like a book, a soundtrack, a spoken word record, like all kinds of stuff, you know, and like 20 films, including my documentary. But yeah, even before we got to the point where we we're doing the box set, it was like, you know, finishing the film and then submitting it to places like I, you know, I'd never made a film before, but I had really, I ended up hiring editors that were not me. You know, I was like, this is beyond my level of experience as an editor. Like, I just can't, I'm okay with doing a featurette, but this is much more complex. It needs a way better editor. So I got uh, these two editors, Ben Shern and Winnie Chung. They totally transformed it into something that felt really cinematic. The Canadian filmmaker Guy Matt and I actually had him doing collage animations for it as one of the first things. So even when it was just going to be half an hour long, I had already contacted him about doing collages for it. There was already going to be some sort of ambitious element to it, you know, even when it was just going to be half an hour. But yeah, then it just grew, you know, so then we had like original music and all kinds of other animation and it just turned into its own thing. And it became a much bigger topic, I think, partially because when I went into it, I was thinking of it really in terms of British folk horror. For me, my perspective was so focused on British folk horror. That was kind of how I first heard of folk horror. It was always British movies that I had heard of discussed with that tag of folk horror. And it wasn't until I started looking at American folk horror because I was, I was originally looking at American folk horror like Eyes of Fire and The Witch and things that were very associated with the early kind of colonial period that were all very connected back to the British folk horror still, you know, because it's like these are like early settlements, you know, people coming from the British Isles, you know, so I was still looking at it in terms of like its connection to British folk horror. But then as soon as you start thinking about like Eyes of Fire has a lot of indigenous characters, it has like contact with indigenous people and stuff like that. And it was really like thinking about that stuff that made me think like there was a different perspective of folk horror when you start looking at the people that already were here. That it wasn't just something that was brought over by British people, that folk horror looks different to different people around the world. And it doesn't always follow that same template that we know of from, from a lot of British folk horror. You know, it's like one thing to have like these sort of colonial or settler cultures that are like willingly moving around the world, you know, but then you also have all the people who either are moved unwillingly, you know, such as like the slave trade. And then you also have the people who like lived there already that didn't necessarily want the, these new people moving there or whatever. There's issues around contact, 
you know, and this became a really important thing in terms of what I was considering folk horror, because I think when we were first talking about British folk horror, so much of it was focused on like, you know, the creepy village where they, they still have these backwards pagan beliefs, you know, like that was kind of this really common type of folk horror in the UK. And then once you start looking at folk horror around the world, it becomes so much more about contact, you know, it becomes so much more about these belief systems that are different from each other coming into contact with each other and the friction that that creates. And so it's ambiguous often in terms of like which side of that the film is saying is right. You know, like often it's hard to determine what stance, you know, the film is taking. But I don't think that matters because I think one of the things that's interesting about folk horror is it kind of just puts these belief systems together and makes you question how much they actually have in common, how much they are actually different, you know, whatever. And that's where it's also interesting in terms of its relevance to things that are happening in the real world now, where you have these like very stark divisions of people and you have this concept of insiders and outsiders, people who are part of your community, people who are outside of your community that you don't understand. Like all horror is like an exaggerated version of reality anyway. And so folk horror works really well because I feel like it kind of reflects the way that there's such a division right now where people feel like they can't relate to people in their own families who have different views from them, whether it's like right-wing politics or like people not wanting to get COVID vaccinations or whatever. There's like people where they're just like, I just can't even talk to this person. Like we're speaking another language, you know? So folk horror is kind of like a really good reflection of the, you know, like even though it wasn't like created for these times, it already existed, but it just, it's something that I think resonates with a lot of people right now because of the stuff that we're going through. Yeah. The film so beautifully connects all of that too, because you begin with your thesis of the unholy Trinity and then it branches off to yeah other parts of the world. And you even work in deliverance and the field of England. It, it's a lot about ignoring the past and thinking that you've become better than the past, but the past always had a truth of its own. And that was a really beautiful uh, con interconnectivity in the film, but it also seems to be a great interconnectivity with the Blu-ray box set, whereas each disc seems to be covering a different uh, country. How did you go about unraveling which films to include in the box set other than what Severin was buying? Were there certain films that you were like, this needs to be in there for this certain context? And did you hear about new films you might not have known about through interviews or what have you? Well, I definitely heard about films I didn't know about from doing the interviews, you know? So like, there's a couple films that are in the box set that I hadn't heard about until the interviewees mentioned them, you know, so clear cut was one of those, even though it's Canadian, I had not heard of this movie and a few interviewees mentioned it. And, you know, I loved it instantly and David Gregory loved it. And that became like one of the films that we were really determined to include. It also led to like what I think is the best disc in the box set. I think the clear cut disc is actually the best disc in terms of like the extras on it are pretty impressive. This is the Canadian disc that has Mike Peterson's film on it as well. Correct. Yeah. So his short film Consume is on that disc. There's three short films. One of those short films even has a commentary of its own. There's like special features for the special features, you know, and then Tilbury, the Icelandic film was also a film I had not heard about until Alexandra Heller Nicholas mentioned it in the film. Lake of the Dead, the Norwegian film, Jonathan Rigby had mentioned in his interview. So that's how I heard of that. Like there was a bunch of stuff in there that I didn't know, didn't know until the interviewees brought it up. But I think when we were trying to pick what went in the box set, I sort of made a wish list of everything I would include. Then David Gregory, who knew more about the kind of rights situations of different films, he just checked off a bunch of them like, we can't get that, can't get that, can't get that, you know, because this is like MGM or Kino Lorber has that or 
whatever, you know, because often there will be companies who have the rights to films, but they haven't done anything with them yet. So the public doesn't know that there is somebody that's bought it and they're kind of sitting on it while they work on their own extras or whatever. So there were certain films we weren't going to be able to get for that reason. And then other ones that were just going to be too expensive, you know, like Eye of the Devil was one I would have really liked to include. So it came down to like really trying to zero in on films that we felt like were not in most cases were not available, you know, like that hadn't either never been released in North America or hadn't been released for like decades, like since VHS, you know, so like Allison's Birthday and Eyes of Fire were both examples of that where they'd been released on VHS and then never again, you know. And so we got new restorations of both films. Allison's Birthday, we have a new 2K scan of it. Eyes of Fire was a 4K scan from the negatives. You know, and then other ones, it was like, you know, the Serbian film, Leptirica. And then we had like Polish films, Wilska and Locus on there. And we had Lake of the Dead from Norway, Tilbury from Iceland. And then for a while, we didn't even have anything British, which was weird. We were just like, wait, we've gotten all these other countries. And now we don't actually have anything British on the disc. And so we were really trying to get some of the BBC stuff, but it's very hard to you know, TV stuff is often really hard to license. Like the rights are just weird, you know, because their rights, they don't often include like home video and stuff. And so it becomes like a contractual, they would be like, we'd have to contact everybody and get entirely new contracts made for this movie in order to be able to license it to you. But somehow we got approval on Pendus Fen and Robin Redbreast. So we got those two. And then Field in England is actually possibly my favorite folk horror film, or it's like, it's definitely up there. It's definitely one of my favorites. And so that's like the newer film on the set. And it's also the most available film on the set that you can get elsewhere. But it was just one of my favorites. And also David Gregory on, on Severin. We both really love that film. And so we just wanted to include it as kind of a personal favorite you know but a lot of it was looking at films that weren't really available and seeing what we could do and then getting you know trying to get interviews with the directors or trying to get like bonus features like short films by the directors giving experts from other countries an opportunity sometimes to speak about that director for the first time to a North American audience like Dejan Ognjanovic who's like a Serbian scholar you know I mean he's got a PhD he's written like all these books about Serbian horror and stuff the film Leptiritsa he's written about it in Serbia a lot he's written a book about the director and all this stuff but he was really excited at the idea to then talk about that director and interview the director like for a North American release because this never happened nobody knows who that director is but even though in Serbia he's very famous you know and that was the case with a with a bunch of them you know where it was like these Eastern European films where the directors are very well known and very respected there but people here like have no clue who they are and so the people filming them were just really excited to help you know spread the word about these films and you know we had people helping us with subtitles like random people in Poland you know who like worked at a film festival or something we just didn't have a lot of you know because every time you interview somebody foreign you have to get it translated and subtitled, which is like much more expensive than just doing somebody in English. You know, we didn't have that much of a budget. So we had like people just helping us very cheaply, like in other countries, like trying to help us do the translations and everything just because they wanted to see these movies come out. It's beautiful. It looks like it's definitely my most anticipated release of the year. It comes out in December for people listening at home. That And after watching Woodlands, Darkened Days, Bewitched, trust me, you will want to pick up the box set and see as many of these beautiful films as possible. So, so thanks so much for joining us, Kayla, and thanks for all the hard work you did with the Saturday Morning Cartoon Party. It's a huge staple at Cuff, but it's I'm happy to see that you're just going to keep killing it and our paths will continue to cross in the future. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Folk horror is based upon the juxtaposition of the prosaic and the uncanny. It's strange things found in fields, lights flickering in dark woods, the darkness in children's play, being lost in ancient landscapes. Folk horror ultimately asks, what if the old ways were right? Thanks again, Kayla. I honestly cannot wait for that box set to arrive at my house. Oh, it's massive. Did you get this special one with like a map and stuff too? There's like, or maybe it can't even be shipped to Canada. It can't even be shipped so to big. Canada. It's got a plate in it too. Oh yeah, a plate. Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't get that limited one. It was quite a, quite a bit more expensive, but uh, you better believe I jumped right on the basic boat Me edition. too. I can't wait. All right, Rhett. I believe we have... What? Oh, wait. Do you hear that? Beep, 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 beep. Golden Boys Report with producer Rhett Miller. <laughs> so we got to see a new movie in the theaters, like, opening day. We saw a new movie for one of the Golden Boys outings? It doesn't happen very often, even in the COVID times here especially. But we finally, we got to see Halloween Kills were huge, you know, slasher horror, you know, the big, the tentpole franchises of Michael, Jason, and Freddy. And of course, you know, with Friday the 13th being in some legal, right, legal hell yeah, legal limbo. <laughs> forever and no sort of propensity to want to make a new Elm Street, it seems. We at least can rely now, thanks to uh, Bloomhouse and Jamie Lee Curtis and whoever, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride. Danny McBride and a little bit of John Carpenter synth to get a new Halloween every the next two years here. So we jumped on the chance to all get together with the boys and watch Halloween Kills. And what do you think, Cam? I got to admit, I had expectations going in. I quite liked the new approach to the remake that David Gordon Green directed, writing with his best friend. and Requel. Requel, Danny McBride. Uh, I, I, I've watched it a couple times. I think it's slick delivers the goods and I was really excited to see where they were going to take it next and I was a little worried that it would be addressing current events too much. I was ready to be a little critical of this film, I will admit. And so while I was watching Halloween Kills, I was veering between immense enjoyment. There were certain moments I loved, but there are a lot of cringe-inducing moments <laughs> in this film. It feels a little ham-fisted at points about what it's trying to say about mob mentality. And the structure is or kind about of... Trauma. Or, or about Curtis trauma. Or about trauma. Or post-Trump world. Yeah, or empathy. Yeah, yeah. Like, it is definitely too... Like, it focuses on current events a little too much for my liking. However... It's not my movie. It's David Gordon Green's movie. He gets to do whatever he wants. And so I learned to accept what he was trying to do. I still don't know what he was trying to say. Maybe we'll find that out in the next one. But I got to say, after watching this, Rhett and I had a great discussion because we weren't sure if we liked it or didn't like it. But the more we discussed it, 
it turns out we really liked it. Like it's it's goofy. It's like a silly movie. I don't know how if it thinks it's silly. The first one had a couple jokes in it. This one I think only has like one joke in it. But it's so self-serious that it's endearing in a way. Yeah, and it's so overstuffed. Like it's sort of like going back to the the Cuff movie marathon. It felt like kind of like a Friday the Thirteenth Five. Like it's just got everything in there blended up together and goes in all these wild directions. You've got such a probably the biggest cast of characters in any Halloween movie, and certainly the most uh, di- diverse. Yeah, highest body count by far. Yeah, and it's just yeah, it's sort of just insane what's in that movie. And then it goes. I always like when it kind of goes back to the past, and then it'll reshoot some other sort of side plots that we didn't see in the original ni- 1970. That stuff was Halloween. beautiful. They, yeah, yeah, they reenact some scenes from the first one, and then yeah, show the what what happened after that. And I I loved those moments, and I loved the singular slasher scenes. That in fact, I think the old folks kill is one of my favorite slasher sequences of in recent memory. One of the only ones to really understand what Michael was about, like he kind of was a little bit of a tr- prankster, trickster, or he sort of was discovering death, you know, cause he still has the mentality of the six year old. And they actually mentioned that in the movie uh, for a change, but it's like, he's sort of like figuring out what death is. And so it, it lingers on, on that, on that older couple a lot longer. And it sort of makes you realize that, okay, we're having fun here too, but like, this is some pretty heavy stuff too. And it, it's, it's even more disturbing to just watch, just to, to stay there a little bit. And I'm glad David Gordon Green gave us that little moment to breathe and to But then to they got, the, then they got Mike Myers going John Wick. Oh like yeah, twice. twice. Like slow-mo, like <laughs> martial arts action scenes. And it's yeah. a very strange movie, but I think it's one that I'm going to enjoy watching uh, when I revisit the series. Just because, as you said, there's a lot going on in this, but it also checks off the boxes of what you want in a Halloween movie. Um, and it, sometimes not even. like a, It kind of felt like a David Gordon Green, like OG David Gordon Green, like George Washington, all the real girls, David Gordon Green. Like You're hanging out with these eccentric characters and you're hearing stories about old Huckleby this bat and stuff it felt like you're like living in North Carolina with all these people right like it felt like really cool that way yeah and I mean my criticisms may be completely washed away with the next movie because my criticism was mainly about the theme of the film it just felt like the theme was all over the place but why should I care it's a slasher movie right and it's like the theme is going to be what it is in, in 10 years, and it may be a nice time capsule of this period, or it may be something I just ignore when watching again in the future. But it is nice to see that with each Halloween 2, they decide Laurie Strode stays in a bed this whole movie. <laughs> yeah. Laurie Strode is just going to lay around in the bed. Yeah, for how much they want to ignore Halloween 2 from this new canon, they sure do a lot to homage it. They even have a, they use some shots from it with Sheriff Brackett, some flashbacks. And they do a throwback of Loomis talking about how many times he shot Michael. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it's, you know, there's a lot of fan service in it too. So it just sort of has everything. So I, it definitely is overstuffed. The dialogue certainly is very on the nose or, you know, definitely could use another, uh, another combing through, but... Man, it's just a wild good time. I don't know how you could could dislike it, I guess. I mean, unless you're some you know, real Halloween purist or something like that. But Yeah, but even I think the Halloween purists are going to enjoy it too just because <laughs> it's a new Halloween movie that's not Halloween Resurrection. 
Yeah. The other cool thing too is like Halloween has gone some weird directions. Like Halloween six, we had some druids in there, and you know it's it's gone even crazier. I mean Halloween three, even they tried to go in a completely new non Michael direction. But what I liked in this one at the end is I think they kind of embrace the supernatural element that Michael is beyond just a f physical being. Like he's like an essence or a presence or an incubus or yeah. something. Yeah, but they only do it in like the last three minutes. It was the strangest tonal yeah. shift at <laughs> yeah. the very end of the movie. You're like, okay, what? Like no spoilers, obviously, yeah. but it gets very mystical in the last, in the very last scene. And it, it I really want to see Halloween ends and I hope that, you know, it comes out next year or in two years at least because yeah. just, I, I'm just itching to see the story wrapped up, you know, because this one was all carnage, not a whole lot of story and what story was there didn't really work for me, but it's not fair to judge it without its companion piece ex in existence. Yeah, it's like, you know, Empire Strikes Back to Return of the Jedi, like it feels like it's setting up a whole bunch of stuff and we can't really judge it until you see it pay off. Cause yeah. there's a few question marks at the end where you're like, wait, did that character just die? No, did it? Yeah, and these are the things I see people complaining about is like, yeah. oh, the mob mentality thing, blah, blah, blah. But it's like that arc isn't finished yet. So let's just wait. Let's just wait to see what happens. Until the point is made, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, it's a great time otherwise. Oh, yeah. You, won't, you won't be bored, that's for sure. No, no. It was, we were laughing our asses off during this <laughs> film. And Big I, John. Big John and Little, Little John. Little John. Big John. Yeah, so watching the perfect Halloween film. John Cassavetti's Minnie and Mousekowitz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's got some real uh, quirks. Quirky touches, for sure. Yeah, they, uh, Danny McBride and Dave Gordon Green have left their stamp on the Halloween franchise, and John Carpenter gets to smoke weed and jam with his kids in between NBA basketball gaming sessions. <laughs> and hey, the synth still holds up. It's oh, that's timeless. beautiful. Yeah. This is the point in the show where you usually hear a box ruffling with some papers or plastics in it and we go through the loot that we got in the mail that month. I actually haven't been getting that much mail lately. Uh, my partner Heather's been giving me shit for all the unwatched discs we have, so I've been going through what I still have to view. I'm sure you're in a similar position. Oh yes, yes. So why don't we simplify things? Let's just do some Halloween movie picks, the theme of the episode today. All cool right. with that, Rhett? Yeah, a couple of funny ones to curate for this Halloween season. All right, I got my bag here. Let me just reach in, grab the first thing. Ticks, baby! Oh. Ticks from director Tony Randall, Hellraiser 2, auteur. Starring the great Clint Howard. Starring the great Clint Howard, as well as Seth Green and Carlton from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> Alfonso, come on, you gotta give him his real name. This is a creature feature about ticks that grow gigantic from weed-altering chemicals that the local uh, farmers have been using to mutate their marijuana crops to yield larger marijuana, um, I don't know, gatherings, harvest. <laughs> <laughs> I have a specific ticks memory that will never leave my brain. I first watched this Opus in maybe 1996 and I was eating strawberry shortcake with my family and Clint Howard's face was bursting with boils and he was screaming about being infested and it was the first time I said, I don't think I want to eat this dessert. Like, I don't think I can eat this dessert right now. Now the film itself 
it's kooky, it's over the top, it's a, it's a bunch of kids trying to get reformed in the woods and getting attacked by gigantic ticks. There's some beautiful creature work, and I just think it's a great time, and I was really excited to see the Vincents doing a 4K restoration of this film, as I often felt like the only ticks fan for a long time. And whenever I showed it to other people, they wouldn't even enjoy it that much. Like, But I mean, I just, I love the 90s kitsch of it. I love the gross creatures of it. And I just like the overall vibe of this movie. I've seen it like 10 times. I'll continue to watch it. I probably won't buy the 4K as I already have the olive Blu-ray that I paid way too much money for. And I don't really need to see ticks in 4K, but big fan of ticks. I think it's a great Halloween movie. It's a lot of fun. Tony Randall did, you know, Hellraiser 2. It's got, you know, it's got some good pedigree behind it. And we can't end the segment without you saying, you know, the line. I'm invested! <laughs> it's the grossest moment, man. And Clint Howard's, you know, he's got a face that a mother could love. I, I mean, I don't think he's as ugly as uh, he gets credit for, but when he's covered in tick boils, it's really gross. I, I would stop eating my shortcake, too. <laughs> what do you got, Rhett? Next one for me, and it's actually a new one I got, okay, but I've been waiting over 20 years to watch this one. I watched it back in VHS when I was scouring the, you know, the video stores for a horror movie I hadn't seen, and uh, here it was called House of Death, but Arrow just released it this month, and it's called Death Screams. I guess that's the other title for it. Crazy North Carolina slasher. So North Carolina had this kind of renaissance, kind of spearheaded by this uh, actor, producer, director type named Earl Owensby. And he created a studio there, and they were built, making you know a lot of low-budget sort of drive-in uh, fun movies. They had 3D movies they were doing. They were sort of jumping on everything. And they were so successful at their little small regional business model that like Dilo De Laurentiis created his big studio there and well, he bankrupt him. But I mean, uh, you know, North Carolina became a really big hub for all these interesting sort of movies that were being made. But what I love so much about House of Death or Death Screams as it's called now is uh, it's got a really like a, a tight knit sort of cast of characters. They're all theater actors together. There's like a really good repartee that they have between them. And it's got my favorite trappings of, of the slasher films that I personally like. Going out in the woods, they're telling scary campfire tales at the cemetery and just, you know, pranks and hijinks. They go to a carnival and they're going into the fun house there. Like there's just a lot of like fun sort of, you know, hanging out with your friends type vibes with that one. It's got a few twists and then, you know, it's a little sparse on the deaths, but then once they get to that house of death in the last 15 minutes, I think there's like at least crazy 10 people one. just start dying, like just left and right and left and right. So a lot of fun, really charming regional slasher film right from the golden era, 1982. So. Uh, I've been pining for this for years. It only had a VHS release. So nice to see Arrow do what they do and just give it so much love. It's a beautiful uh, 35 millimeter scan. Uh, just warms my heart to see it. It was great to watch it again. All right, I got a slasher up next too. Oh. One that doesn't have a beautiful release, although it should. Toby Hooper's The Toolbox Murders remake. $2.99 on that disc. You, you got I got this steal. for $2.99. And I gotta be honest, I, I love Toby Hooper's early films. And I was always afraid of 
his newer films, which is weird to say because what was what's this almost twenty years old now? But yeah. coming up as a horror nut, I I loved Toby so much. I didn't want to watch his new stuff because I was worried it would be bad, uh, especially something like that, which is like a remake or remake in time. A remake of a movie I don't even like. I don't even like the original Toolbox Murders that much. I, I'm much more of a Driller Killer fan myself. <laughs> yeah, but I. I was reading Development Hell, and it was talking about a Toby Hooper movie that didn't get made. It was um, it was a white zombie remake that he'd been working on in the 2000s. And I was like, the, the quotes from Toby, I was like, oh man, he still had integrity and was still trying to just make great horror up to the end, even with smaller budgets. So I was like, I'm going to check out his Toolbox Murders remake. And it helped that I found it for $2.99 at a thrift <laughs> store. So Toolbox Murders stars Angela Bettis. She's moving into this decrepit L.A. apartment building that's got this history based around the occult. And what I found that Toby did so successfully with the film is it shows the death of dreams in L.A. It shows the everyday L.A. where you just got off a crappy shift at a restaurant and you're buying your pack of smokes in the rain and you got some sides to read that night for an audition you might not even get the next day. And then what the hell, you just get murdered by a coffin baby <laughs> out of the blue. And so I hadn't known about coffin babies until this movie, but the main slasher in this is is a coffin baby, which was a baby that didn't die but was buried. People thought it was dead and it was buried, but it was still alive. And what, it like survives in the ground? Well, I don't want to ruin it for you. I don't <laughs> okay. want to ruin it for you, but... It's a cool twist for this movie because the whole film you're thinking, oh, it's a slasher, it's the handyman. It's the slasher, it's the handyman. And yeah. then Toby's like, no, nah, it ain't. It's this weird creature called a coffin baby, dudes. Oh. And it's like, this movie's kills are so well thought out and they're and all of the characters are so well developed before they meet their end that it just makes for an entertaining film. But Toby was also able to put his social satire in there. And it's a huge uh, satire of Hollywood and even of the types of movies Toby wanted to make but couldn't necessarily get the budget for. So it doesn't look great. Like the cinematography is not the best, but the spirit's there. The script's great. The acting is so good and the kills are off the chain. And I don't usually watch deleted scenes, but I just put on this deleted scenes reel because like I had five minutes to spare. It's all uncut gore. And so the movie is quite gory itself, oh, yeah. but the deleted scene reel is disgusting. And so I really hope that someone, a boutique label, picks up Toolbox Murders, Toby Hooper's Toolbox Murders one day and gives it a nice transfer because there's a great film. There's a great film in here. There's a very good film that exists currently, but with that gore, put back in and a nice new transfer, I think that people would adore this movie. And I'm very close to adoring it <laughs> now myself, and I just got this crappy 299 DVD of it, so please, I hope there's a Blu-ray of it at some point. Yeah, I gotta check it out, and I mean, Toby Hooper, yeah, he sort of, you know, he, he's starting to build up again as like people are taking him a little more seriously as an auteur. I think all the Poltergeist stuff of who directed it or whatever really sort of knocked him down a peg, but it, I think, you know, now people are starting to reappraise him. And for me, myself, I'm excited too because, yeah, after, you know, his run in the 80s with Canon, I didn't, I haven't really seen too many Toby Hooper stuff. You know, he worked with John Carpenter on Body Bags and a couple other ones, but, you know, there's a lot that I'm missing. So it's exciting to me to hear that even a later work, so that's in the 2000s, is 
you know, still holds up. There's probably, there's a lot more that we haven't re revisited yet. That's probably great, ripe for a reappraisal. Yeah, absolutely. I picked up Mortuary in his Jin movie. So I'm definitely gonna be reappraising his 2000. So, and I will leave this DVD here for you, right? You can, really? Yeah, you can check it out. What a guy. I only right. spent 2.99 on it, even though it's priceless now. <laughs> yes, I will treat it like the, like the gem that it is. <laughs> what you got next up, buddy? Well, I'm staying in North Carolina, Earl Owensby again. Another recent one that I got in the same uh, package that I got Death Screams in. It is called A Day of Judgment and possibly the weirdest slasher cam you will ever see. I know you haven't seen it yet. Um, Christian slasher, right? Christian slasher set in the 1920s. It's entirely <laughs> in the 1920s and it's all about how godless the world has become. People are defaulting on their loans and people are, are having adulterous affairs and, and you know, not doing their due diligence and all these really like formal sort of, I don't know, old fashioned-y sort of things. Breaking the commandments. Yeah, that's what it literally is. And so then you've got this harbinger of death or this grim reaper coming to this town and one by one dispersing of all these, you know, these godless folk. So how do they shoot the kill scenes in a Christian way? <laughs> well, not very good, but it's uh, it's really charming. Several of the cast members from Death Scream are also in A Day of Judgment. Uh, it's got like this, you know, homegrown like theater troupe feeling to it. Like everyone, you know, you got a lot of like people that aren't quite Hollywood. You know, you got some older actors that aren't looking so hot, but they're still like got a fiery personality. So there's a lot of character to it, even if like, you know, they're it's all old fashioned and really, it's really slow moving. Uh, but like House of Death or Death Screams, it really builds to a, a pretty wild climax. And this has one of the craziest twist ending climaxes too, where you're like, what? It doesn't quite work, but I appreciate the audaciousness of it. And so these movies have that no filter, sort of they're away from Hollywood in North Carolina and they were just sort of doing their own thing. A lot of great period detail here to actually pull off the 1920s on such a shoestring budget. Like it looks like sets for most of it, but they're driving this old like 1915 Ford truck and oh, you know, cool. it's like nothing like it. Like it feels like it's like a PG, like, you know, Bible tale. And then all of a sudden you've mixed with a slasher and the heads are getting cut off and stuff like that. And you're like, what? <laughs> Well, I'm always curious whenever Severin puts out a title that I haven't heard of, and then I looked at the special features and Steven Thrower's on there, my man. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I was gonna pick it up, but you've sealed the deal. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna watch this film. It's kind of an endurance run, but it's like nothing you will have ever seen before. You will never forget it. You may not enjoy your watch of it, <laughs> but you will certainly be like, wow, I will, I will always remember this obscure North Carolina 1920s Christian slasher. <laughs> All right, well, What's my your last, last one? My last Halloween pick is not that obscure, but it's a film that brings the Halloween spirit out in me. Joe Dante's Matinee, starring John Goodman in his finest performance as pretty much William Castle, the, <laughs> the showman of the uh, horror days who would put buzzers in people's seats during the Tingler and uh, a variety of other carnival-style amusements to enhance the viewer's enjoyment of these creature films. Mm -hmm. And in this film, John Goodman's producer-director is touring with a new production called Mant, about a giant killer ant. And uh, the, the, the reenactments for Mant are so good and so pure and loving to the genre of I horror. I wanted to just see a full, full feature Mant because it's so fun. It is, it is. And whenever they show Mant or the coming attractions in here, you know that Joe Dante loves these movies, but then when you get into the main plot of the film, 
he gives you a, a history lesson, essentially, in how a lot of horror films mimic what's happening in current events. With this, it was the Cold War and the Bay of Pigs incident showing that underneath these goofy movies, there's always something in society that makes people want to go be scared because there's something in their life that's scary and they need a movie to simplify it and put it in a digestible way. And for you to go to the movies and laugh about your fears with your fellow movie lovers. And so that's what I really love about Matinee is that it shows why people love horror. It shows the history of horror, but it also lovingly depicts the movies that Joe Dante grew up watching, the giant killer creature movies. Yeah, and John Goodman being like a like a perfect facsimile of William Castle, you know, lining the seats with buzzers on him and just finding any gimmick, you know, and that was such a fun era, you know. Yeah. I, I would love it, to see that again. Really I guess we get D-Box as our, yeah, well. our William Castle today. But, but you see John Goodman's character like installing the buzzers in the seats himself and hiring the actor to run through the audience screaming like the man himself. And then it all comes together in this really cool, fun, uh, chaotic way where romances are made and screams are heard, but it's all in a nice, tidy little package that just makes you go, God damn, I love horror movies, but I also love being alive and getting to watch horror movies. So, I, I mean, Matinee isn't exactly a horror movie. I, there are horror scenes in it, but it's an ode to horror movies, which I believe is the spirit of the season. Yeah, definitely. I just, I love movies set in a movie theater too. Demons, which we saw earlier in the month. But the theater, like if you just look at it, it's like one of the few places where all walks of life can meet. Like usually you're meeting your social circles and you're meeting certain people, but like certainly in that time even, like a movie is a thing that just everyone would go to. It doesn't matter who you are. You're a business executive, you're a, a child, you're a, uh, at home. You know, it's like you're going to go to the movies. And so this is the chance for everyone to get together and all these different ideas, ideologies or whatever clash together in this one giant room, you know, where we're all shared and we're all loving the same thing on the screen. Like there's just something beautiful about that. So I love seeing movies about it. And matinee, yeah, definitely one of the best. Yeah, pick it up. And I have the Arrow release of Matinee, which has the full-length version of Mant on it, which is only like, yeah, 15 to 20 minutes. But yeah, I want full Mant. Full-length Mant. I love it. Yeah, you got a last one? I do. This is literally a Halloween movie. I'm just picking it again. Halloween 5. It is uh, my go-to one. And we've, we talked about Malign sequels in terms of Friday the 13th, Five: The New Beginning, or even Halloween Kills. But before Halloween Kills, there was Halloween 5, and that's the one that everyone seems to hate and everyone likes to hate on. But for me, it's, it's maybe the most adventurous, most stylistic, most bizarre uh, Halloween entry. And it it's comes from an era, you know, where there wasn't that brand sort of protection that you have now with Marvel or DC, where all movies are thought out four or five movies in advance, and you got to do this and such and such with, with the character or the mask or the suit or whatever. And this one, it's like all bets are off. It's like, okay, uh, yeah, Michael uh, gets revived by some guy with a parrot. Uh, yeah, he's like controlled by a druid guy. Oh yeah, there's this man in black who just decides to show up and we never explain who this character is. Uh, we break him out of jail with a Tommy gun. It's just like, what is going on with this movie? You only mentioned all the driving that Michael does in this one. <laughs> yeah, and he's driving through fields, like, and he's, you know, he's, he gets a scythe, which is pretty awesome. He's finding some new weapons. 
Uh, there's like these clown cops that makes a little honking sound every time they walk. Like you're just like, how did this get made? Yeah, it feels very European. It, and yeah, the director, French director, uh, went, went on to do a couple other weird ones too, and Night Angel and uh, Omen 4. Uh, it just has like, yeah, it feels like there's definitely some kind of language barrier there. It's a lot more stylish, like the camera's moving all the time. It's beautifully lit by Ron Draper. It's just a, a real sort of feast. And then K&B effects. Yes, K&B effects as well. From that era where everything was cut up a lot, but there's a few little things that seep through. A lot of just blood being splashed into people's faces or on a small kitten or something like that. A lot of fun, and of course, the, the, the standout in that one is Danielle Harris, probably one of the best child performances ever. She's like mute for half the movie, but like so emotive, and she has to, she's basically like screaming or in peril or in terror, like the whole movie. Like it would have just been so difficult for a performer to do that, an adult performer, and she just, just nails it like everyone and you're just invested in her and this journey that she goes on so it's a wild one it's definitely you know not a crowd pleaser a lot of people seem to hate on it a lot but for me and my wife it's one that basically every Halloween and try to fire it up at least once uh, the, the first five movies have had a new 4k release from Scream Factory so it gave me another excuse to force my wife to watch it again and uh, she came out happy good well, I hope listeners at home find some wonderfully spooky, haunting films to check out this Halloween season. And please do join us for the Cuff Halloween Marathon. We'll be back next month with a very special Cuff Docs episode. We'll be joined by Brenda Lieberman and Brenda Tilly. And we'll be going over the complete lineup of the 2021 Cuff Docs presented by your friends at the Calgary Underground Film Festival. So thanks for joining us today, boils and ghouls, and I hope you get some good loot trick-or-treating. Bye.